Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. I've met many audiobook professionals and avid listeners on my journey as an audiobook narrator, and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and enjoy a friendly chat about audiobooks and audiobook production. Joining me tonight in the speakeasy is not who you might have been expecting. Last week, I told you that the fabulous Carol Mondo would be joining me tonight, but as so often happens in the world of VO, a last-minute job came up, so Carol couldn't make it. Good for Carol, not so good for me. What to do? Well, fortunately, I'd already been in touch with an equally fabulous narrator and coach, and her calendar allowed for a last-minute schedule change. So joining me now is a multiple Audi Award-winning narrator and narration and acting coach, the amazingly talented Andy Arndt. Andy, thanks for stopping by the speakeasy tonight. Yeah, my pleasure, Rich. Thanks. Really glad you could make it. So what are you drinking tonight? Well, I'm starting with some hot water as I come down from my session today, ah, and then smart. I'll probably switch to some red wine. Red wine. That, that's so funny because I thought you were going to be a wine drinker, but I thought it was going to be white. Well, I like everything. That's good. <laughs> so tonight, I, you know, I try to tailor my drinks to the people that I'm speaking with here in the speakeasy. So I looked up Virginia, found out that the state spirit... Who knew that any state even had a state spirit? But the state spirit of Virginia is George Washington Rye Whiskey. So I thought, great. But then I saw that you can only buy it in person from the distillery. And it's $90 a bottle. So for a couple of reasons, no chance I'm going to be having any George Washington Rye Whiskey. So I had to reach a little farther afield. Turns out that Virginia, I believe you're in Virginia, was named after Queen Elizabeth I, also known as the Virgin Queen. And let's see, that's over in the UK, and uh, let's see, they like London Dry Gin in the UK, so it was a good excuse for a martini. I kind of okay. finished off the, the uh, it, it sort of fell apart there, though, because I'm actually having an Italian martini with sun-dried tomato-stuffed olives, but that's kind of how I arrived at a martini. Okay. So, cheers. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> I'll clink the hot water against the top screen. <laughs> I hope you make it to wine before we're done, but I do understand that if you just finished recording, water is a good thing. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so where are you from? I grew up in Minnesota, and when I was in high school, my dad got a promotion from his job in Minneapolis to uh, the World Financial Center, American Express headquarters in Lower Manhattan. Um, so I finished high school in New Jersey. I came down to college here in Virginia. And except for about a three-year period when I went to grad school and worked in the D.C. area, I've pretty much been here ever since. Wow. So from uh, Minnesota to uh, New Jersey slash Manhattan area, that must have been quite a, quite a shock for a kid. Uh, well, I was, it was the summer I turned 15 we moved. And, ah, a little bit uh, older. The, the, yeah, a little bit older. And, you know, it was a, it was a culture shock, but it was also... Um, if I hadn't done that, if my parents hadn't made that decision, I would probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Sometimes things you have mm -hmm. no control over actually play a big part in uh, in what happens later on. So where did you go to school? College, you mean? Mm -hmm. uh, James Madison University. James Madison. Not familiar with James Madison University. Where is that? Yeah, nobody's ever heard of it. It's, <laughs> it's a state school. It's part, of, it's part of the state system in Virginia. Ah. Um, Virginia has a great state system. It includes UVA, of course, and William and Mary and George Mason. And, um, yeah. So. All right. So, and what did you do there? I, uh, had an interdisciplinary undergraduate degree in social science. So history, political science, economics, 
sociology, anthropology. I'm missing something. Wow, that sounds like a I'll lot, think of though. It. Yeah, and then every elective that I had, I took a theater class. Ah, so it was the electives that got you into the performing arts. Well, I was already in them, but I was one of those people who was worried about how to explain to my family. Um, you know, I, I just, there was no way when I was an 18-year-old I could have said, I'm going to be a theater major. Um, sure, yeah. Because I just was very focused on, like, they would worry about me, and it doesn't sound very practical and whatever. So I did a practical course of study, but then the the theater faculty thought I was a theater major because I was always there. So <laughs> Spending all <laughs> your free time. So then when you got Pretty out much. of school, did you, did you go for the, um, the, the safety of the, um, the degree that you had gotten, or did you start pursuing theater arts or performing arts right away after school? Well, I um, realized my senior year, the fall of my senior year, that I did not want to be a high school social studies teacher. <laughs> um, and I had been very organized about my class schedule so that I had my whole last semester of college ready for student teaching and practicum and all that stuff that you have to do to get your licensure. And I went to my advisor and said, if I don't do that, like if I decide I don't want to get certified to teach, could I just graduate in December? And he said, yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah. So I graduated early and I took an internship at the Kennedy center in DC, um, in their arts education program. And I got really interested in the intersection between arts programs and schools. Um, so I designed my own master's degree at George Washington university in DC, um, performing arts education. And the idea was that I would either be an arts coordinator for a, a big school district, or I would be uh, a school liaison in a pretty big performing arts center. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. So that was, so, that was so, the plan. <laughs> so, so you got lots of good school education based stuff, uh, when you were in college, but since you had done all the performing arts stuff as well, kind of gives you a foot in that door. Sounds like a, like a great nexus. Did you actually go into doing stuff with schools? I worked uh, at, I got a fellowship as the end of my grad school program. I got a fellowship at the National Endowment for the Arts um, in their arts and education program. And I did some consulting work, um, basically jobbing in at the Kennedy Center in their education programs. Um, but at the same time all this was going on, I was dating my husband, my now husband, and um, things were getting serious. And he already had the stable job down here in Harrisonburg, um, he works for James Madison University. Oh. And I was just finishing a fellowship with no, you know, no plan. So it kind of seemed like the logical thing to do for me to come here to Harrisonburg. And uh, the thing about this town, especially 20 years ago, is that there's not a major arts institution and the school district doesn't support a full-time arts coordinator. So... I had to pretty quickly think about what am I going to do work-wise now? Cause I can't do what I was going to do. Right. So, um, I turned on public radio and one of my college uh, friends that I had worked with at the college radio station was on the public radio station. And I called and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you sound all grown up and stuff. You know? <laughs> And he's like, yeah, I work here now. You know, I'm the program director, assistant program director. 
And long story short, I started working at the station WMRA, and I ended up being full-time there for a few years. And then the university theater department called and said, you know, we wondered if you would teach one section of basic acting. And I thought, well, I don't know if I can do that. You know, mm-hmm. I had been directing some and, and doing some, some things theater-wise, but I thought, I wonder if I could, I don't think I could do that. But then I thought, well, wait a second. They called me. Yeah. They obviously think that I could do it. So I'll try it. And then if I don't suck, maybe they'll ask me to do it again. <laughs> so um, I ended up teaching for 12 years as a part-timer. Um, and wow, they let that's me, fantastic. yeah, they let me develop a, um, a course in voice for the stage. It was in the course catalog, but nobody was teaching it. So I revived it. And, um, yeah. So clearly you didn't suck. I guess not because <laughs> they, they had me teach one course and then they gave me two sections. And at the height of it, I was teaching three sections a semester. Wow. That's fantastic. So, so, and so it was fun. back when, when you were still in school and when you were doing a non-theatrical course of study, but spending all of your time in the theater department, what were you doing? Was it mostly acting, singing, uh, musicals? straight plays? What were you doing? Not, not musicals. Um, JMU didn't really do musicals at that point. It, it's, it was kind of strange. The only musicals that the university did when I was a student here were uh, organized through the music program. Uh. And it was a bit balkanized where they only cast the music department students hmm. to do the musicals and not really the theater students. Interesting. It seems crazy. And now they have an integrated... Um, musical theater concentration within the theater department or the music department. You can be, you can come to it from either um, major, Mm -hmm. but back then they didn't have that. So um, the cool thing about the program back then was it was very scrappy, uh, you know, let's put on a play. If you can think of, if you can think of it, you can probably do it. Um, So I took all the acting classes. I took playwriting and advanced playwriting um, I took, uh, shoot, what else did I do? I did the, um, director's workshop where we, everybody directed a one act play and I loved that. Um, and I remember faculty coming up to me afterwards and saying, you know, when are you going to direct another one? So I guess it turned out okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just auditioned for everything that I could. And I was on in a couple of the main stage, um, productions, which was kind of a big deal not being a theater major. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. I'm sure that there were some theater majors at the time who were thinking, who the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was, uh, they're still, that's still my, my group of friends from college is the, either the radio station friends or the theater department friends I'm still in touch with. That's great. So, mm-hmm. Very cool. So now you're living in Harrisonburg. And um, what's your home life now? I mean, I, I assume that you do quite a bit of work at home, uh, in a home studio. I, actually, I should ask, I did, I, a lot of people work mostly in studios. Do you mostly work at home or in studios or kind of a mix? I've done two books in studios other than my home studios. Uh, so, so most of it's at pretty home. much here. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so what's the, what's your home life like? Do you have any kids or friends living in your house, pets, any, uh, noise problems or uh, does... friends living in my house? <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> uh, or, or is it a quiet place and, and it works out well being able to, uh, record at home? 
it's quiet during the day. I have two high schoolers and, um, when they're at school and my husband's at work, then it's just me and the dog and we hang out. So that works out pretty well. Yeah. So tell me about some of the, uh, some of the books that you've narrated. Well, um, the first ones that I narrated, one was a self-production, uh, called everyday psycho killers, a history for girls. <laughs> oh my. Um, yeah, it was written by a woman who taught at JMU and who came to my book club. Um, and we decided to, you know, read something that a faculty member had written for our book club. And I, it just, um, I couldn't stop thinking about it after I read it. It was really the kind of unsettling, um, slightly upsetting um, but, and funny in a totally weird way, mm-hmm. kind of book that, that I really like. Um, so I recorded that one about seven years ago. And that was the first, uh, audiobook narration you'd done? Yeah. Okay. And then, um, the first one I did that I was hired to do that I didn't self-produce, and this was before ACX or anything, um, was through B Audio. I did a, a sci-fi, a feminist sci-fi trilogy that ran 69 recorded hours. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) That's a marathon. (laughs) Trial by fire. Yeah. Yep. So what, and uh, then, yeah. So what all, uh, genres have you, have you done all of them or, uh, or just some? Well, I've done, um, mostly romance. Well, half about half romance. And then the other half is bio memoir, mystery thriller, contemporary fiction, um, and some YA that I've really, really enjoyed doing. And I got to do Frozen. So I've done one children's book, but it was a biggie. So Yeah, that is um, a biggie. Mm-hmm. That's great. So that's a lot of half of half of the books that you've done is uh, quite a quite a few. So that's a lot of romance seems to be your uh, specialty. Yes. Um the market likes me there. And so I um have developed a bit of a niche in that, in that genre. That's great. And I know it's a big market too. I know it's one of the, I think it's one of the top three genres in terms of books and audiobooks, if I remember correctly. Not, I'm not positive, but uh, it seems to me that it's way up there. So that's it's great. Big. <laughs> uh, did, were you a romance reader before you were narrating romance? Um, not really. I mean, when I was a teenager I remember reading the Sweet Valley High books that a lot of women my age would would remember mm-hmm. um, that were sort of light um, you know beach romance type things I remember reading the Flowers in the Attic um, series which I'm not sure that really falls under romance <laughs> um, uh, it's not the way that I would think of it I actually remember yeah, those books <laughs> it's, it's more like um, it's more like horror I yeah, don't know but young, yeah it's, young adult um, horror <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'm thinking about sort of like popular fiction that you would get at the grocery store. Sure, if yeah, that makes that, sense. it definitely qualifies in that category. Yeah, um, and I loved. You remember the whole miniseries um, thing where they had like Shogun, and then they had the Thornbirds. Oh, sure, yeah, Thornbirds. You know, and everything huge. was like Richard Chamberlain and yep. all. This. So, I mean, the Thornbirds is still one of my favorite. If it's on, I'm watching it. I it just <laughs> so, you know. I think more with movies, I would be drawn to love stories. But for my reading, um, my reading taste is all over the place. So I don't really have one thing that I like to read 
Okay. So much. Yeah. So, but, but you did kind of fall into romance and it seems to have worked out well. And now that you're narrating a lot of them, have you thought, yeah, this is actually pretty good stuff or is it just, this is a great paycheck? Well, I, I think if it were the latter, I wouldn't deserve the work. Like, uh, if that, if that, yeah, yeah, if that was your whole motivation, that would be a problem for the performance. Yeah. yeah. No, I, what I see in contemporary romance, because I tend to do contemporary, I don't get cast for historical and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, I see these authors wrestling with a lot of important questions about small issues, you know, one-to-one intimacy issues, body image issues, communication issues. Um, equality issues, and that includes what men, um, the way that men are pigeonholed um, because they're men. Like, mm-hmm. they don't, maybe, a woman who doesn't think a man is as tenderhearted or something, and she's kind of walking all over him, and he has to he has to say, whoa, whoa, wait a second, you know, I got feelings too, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and you're stepping all over them. Um you know, the way that relationship patterns play out in subsequent relationships. I mean, if you go out to dinner with friends and the friends are in relationships, how many times does your conversation turn to how did you meet? Mm-hmm. And we're just asking for a love story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we all find it interesting. How do people find each other and discover that they have extra special feelings for each other and they pair up? Yeah, that's very true. That's that's funny. I hadn't really thought about that for a while, but um, I, I do often ask that question because I'm often just sort of fascinated by people that I see. And I, I think that for me, I, I look at couples around me and I just think to myself, what an unlikely couple, probably about 80% of the time. And so I'm always <laughs> fascinated to hear the stories of how these two people got together and how it worked out. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes they're Sometimes I love, I always love when I ask the question and the two people look at each other like, uh, should we give the real story? (laughs) (laughs) Let's hold back a little for our friend. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, and then I see women tackling, uh, because these authors tend to be women that I'm reading for, you know, tackling bigger subjects too. Um, I just did one for Audible last week under my pseudonym that has to do with a relationship in which one character actually has a sex addiction um, and how that impacts the relationship between two people who are trying to um, find their way to to having a long-term relationship. But this one member of the, the couple has this addiction. And what does that mean? And And... I imagine you know, it can, would be a complicating factor. It, it was. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the, sometimes I'll be reading this stuff and I'll think, um, you know, people in the world really deal with this. And so what if somebody is listening to this book who gains a new understanding of how to work through something that seems, I mean, there's a lot of embarrassment and shame around sex in our, in our culture. So if somebody has a book or an audiobook and it's just them and me or them and the book and they're able to sit with it with no judgment and just think through some things i think that's really important actually yeah absolutely sometimes it's uh, it's great to think about how your little piece of the world how the work that you do can affect people that 
you'll probably never meet. Yeah. It, uh, it really kind of is a kind of sobering thought, no matter what kind of work you do. Yeah. Well, that's great. So some of the romance that you've done, I know, have been dual narrations. In fact, I was just listening to one uh, yesterday. I don't have my phone handy, so I, I can't pull it up. But, uh, but I know you've done some dual narration. Uh, point of view, just in case anybody listening doesn't know that. So the point of view shifts from chapter to chapter with alternating chapters being from the bullman's point of view and the others being from the male point of view. So if an experienced narrator, narrator who hasn't done that type of narration wants to break into romance and specifically dual narration, what advice would you give them? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> um, well, you know, you just have to go a little, uh, go to a little extra effort to coordinate the two voices telling the same story. And it's not all that difficult, um, really, if you have a good working relationship with your co-narrator. And I'm lucky to have very good working relationships with um, several men that I co-narrate with where, you know, sometimes we'll have a question about our take on a character and we'll either get on the phone and talk about it or send each other voice samples on our phones or do a shared Dropbox and send little excerpts and saying, you know, this is what I did for the best friend, or this is what, you know, the mother sounds like, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that when we're doing the same characters in each other's chapters, it at least parallels it. Yeah, it makes sense. So the male narrators that you've worked with have, I know that um, since you're in demand and you're well known in the romance genre, I'm sure that you've worked with some pretty big publishers, have have you, uh, the males that you've worked with for the dual narration, have you gotten together with them yourself or are you often put with a male narrator where you had no input as to who your partner was going to be? I usually don't have input. It's usually either the publisher says you're with this narrator and now get in touch with each other and, and work this out. Or an author says, I want you and so-and-so. Or an author says, um, you know, can you give me a short list of men? Um, so in that case, then I'm looking at the, I, what I know of the author because I have ongoing relationships with a cluster of authors that I work for. Mm -hmm. um, I know their work. I know whose voice would fit it well, whose sensibility would, would be sensitive to it. And just today, actually, I said, you know, I would say either this person, this person, or this person. And the author and her assistant listened to all three voices and came back to me with the decision. Okay. That's great that, that you have the people that you've worked with on a regular basis and they trust you enough to say, you know, you're basically acting as a casting director and they're happy with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that's part of, part of the service that I provide to my authors. That's great. So uh, I, I'm wondering, I mean, for the romance, I don't think it really really plays in it much, but, um, do your, do your personal views on politics, religion, anything else ever impact your work? I know it's a, it's a popular topic in a lot of different VO genres, you know, oh, I would never do a political ad for so-and-so, or I would do a political ad for anybody because it's work and I'm a voice actor. And, um, mm -hmm. and I'm always interested to hear from voice actors in any genre how they kind of work that into how they are getting work and what work they will accept. Does that ever come up for you in, uh, in audiobooks? Um, well, it's funny that you say it probably doesn't impact things in, um, romance because that's the main area where 
my values do come into play. Um, the times when I've turned things down because I take a, a look through the script and I see how the intimate scenes are handled. And if there's any kind of um, uh, non-consent or in one case I, I sent something back because uh, the relationship took place partly in, in the people's high school years, but it, the high school uh, years of their relationship, she was a freshman. So that means she's 14. Mm. And he was a senior, which means he's 18. Mm -hmm. And there was some stuff going on that um, at the time, my older daughter was a freshman. And I just said, you know what? I'm sending this back. I could not possibly uh, convey that scene in my life circumstances in a way that serves the book. And it also was written, um, not very well written, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, if something is well written and two people are are older and they're looking back at being high school sweethearts and they got carried away and and whatever, there's a way to write that, you know, I, that I would be able to get behind, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but the way it was written, it was the guy was really callous and it was like, meet me under the bleachers in the stadium. And it was just uh, it, it just seemed like she was getting used and she was. Yeah, I, I just had issues. <laughs> right, right. So, so so there have been times then where your own personal views on things enter into a decision on whether or not to take a job. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So you have won some Audis. Tell me about that experience. Oh, that was crazy. Um, they, uh, nominations this year came out in February and I had a feeling about uh, marriage games, which is, uh, was nominated in the erotica category because it had done really well. Um, I just had a, a feeling about, you know, about that one. And indeed that one was on the nomination list. So I was like, all right. So then I just thought, Oh, let me scroll down and see who else got nominated for stuff. And I got to the romance category, which tended in the past to be skewed toward British accents and sort of, uh, flowy blouse, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. Kind of like, you know, that kind of Regency romance and stuff. And boom, there was my name again. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That is insane. And so um, I was nominated for two. And uh, I went, obviously, to the ceremony. Uh, it was June 1st. And um, the author of Marriage Games wrote this great blog. I'll have to dig it up. Um <laughs> She was sitting next to me. I was sitting between her and the people from Macmillan Audio who produced the other nominated title. And so the uh, Marriage Games was announced first, and then they got to Romance. And the, the funny thing about the Romance one, too, was that Paula Poundstone had sort of reprised her um, giggling about Romance and, um, and just showing that she it made her uncomfortable. She didn't like thinking about it. You know, she just kind of had this running joke left over from last year about how she felt about romance. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they turn the lights down and, and the music comes up and the announcer says, and the nominees in romance are dirty, you know, <laughs> 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 which is the name of the book that won. And it, it's, it's funny you're having a martini. It pertains to a dirty martini because the setting uh. is a bar. <laughs> so the, the cover has a guy with a martini in front of him. Um. But it was just so funny that she had just finished talking about that. And then he's like, dirty. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so 
in the blog that um, Christine wrote about looking back on the Audis, she was like, so we won and it was great. And I was thinking like, or no, maybe, maybe they announced dirty first. And then she was thinking, and then I was like, okay, we won't win because who wins two Audi awards. And she wrote like Andy, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, do you, have you been to the Audi awards? No, I did not go. So this, this past year, uh, at the end of May was the first time that I had been to APAC. And, um, I, I looked at the different things that I could be doing and costs, and I just decided that because I didn't, I still didn't really know too many people in the industry, um, I would not go to the Audis. I sort of wish that I had, but I decided against it. Well, sometime you should totally go. I, um, I definitely plan to at this point. <laughs> but the funny thing is that, like, you know, usually with an award show, the winner goes up to the stage and they make a little speech and, you know, they, that's kind of part of how award shows go. But, um, I think because there are so many categories and there's a dangerous, uh, there's a danger to like having people who talk for a living come up to a microphone. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think we, I think the temptation to just say one more thing, you know, um, (laughs) would make it into a really long night. And so the way that the Audis go is if your name is called, you stand up right where you are and kind of do the, the wave and the little happy dance. And then you sit down. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's just how it goes. It's fine. Yeah. No, but, I'm, um, I'm sure it works well. I just would not expect that. I, yeah. It's just, it's just how it goes. So well, I'll bet I that was, the, I'll bet that was an incredibly exciting night for you. Oh my gosh. It was, it was magical. Yeah. Well, I look forward to going to another Audis, and I'm sure you will be nominated again. Uh, there's also, I know, another award that you received just, I think, a few weeks ago. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, there's another organization called um, the Society of Voice Arts and Sciences, or SOVAS, and they are West Coast-based, founded by Joan, um, oh shoot, what's her last name? I almost said Joan Allen. I can't, um, I can't think of it. Rudy Gaskins. Right. And Joan, I'm going to find it because it's going to drive, Joan Baker okay. and Rudy Gaskins. And it, that's in its fourth year this year. And uh, two titles that I worked on with Zachary Weber uh, were nominated in the romance category. So I went up to New York City there. I guess they're alternating where it is. Last year it was in L.A. This year it was in New York. And it was at the um, Jazz at Lincoln Center venue that overlooks the southwest corner of Central Park. Mm-hmm. And, oh, it's just such a gorgeous, gorgeous venue. And Lily Tomlin was an honoree and Ken Burns was an honoree. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a star-studded night, as they say. And a bunch of audiobook narrators there. So it was uh, definitely fun to see friends and uh, saw Pat Fraley, who I took my very first audiobook workshop with. So always good to touch base with him. Yeah, he's he's awesome. Um, And then uh, Zachary and I one in that category too for Lauren Blakely's The Hot One. Um, and she is a great author that I love working with. She writes a lot of romantic comedy. So it's very much about um, the goofiness of falling in love and the hot stuff too. But the sort of <laughs> like, the sort of like, oh my gosh, I had spinach in my teeth kind of, you know, the real person falling in love. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's, a lo- there's a lot of goofiness to falling in love. I know that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. Well, that's great. Yeah, so that was that was November fifth, I think. 
And then there was something else that I believe was even more recent. Yes. Um, Audible uh, inaugurated its new Narrator Hall of Fame. And uh, it, they named 20 narrators to the uh, inaugural class of inductees. Mm-hmm. And somehow my name wound up on that list. Oh, <laughs> so, come on. <laughs> was like, you deserved it. That was great. That was great. I was, I was so I happy I, to see you that. Know, well, I, it was a really exciting call to get when I got the call. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's cool is there's a 21st inductee, which is the guy who says, this is audible. <laughs> I've heard that voice many times. Many of us have. And they, I mean, how awesome. He was one of their first employees, apparently, a long time ago. Ah. And they just always use his voice. And I hope they always do. Yeah. Well, that's great. Hall of Fame inductee. Congratulations on all of those awards. <laughs> it's been a big year. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, next year, I'll just sit in the back and let other people, like, have a turn. Because it, it's, maybe, like, too good. Maybe. Uh, well, maybe you'll be back up there. Well, the thing is, though... I didn't do any of those books expecting any of those things. I just did one word after another. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Like, I just did what we all do. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that, that makes perfect sense, but it's great that you got the, that you got the awards for it. Yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm really grateful for this year. It's been a great year, and also um, just having the really cool colleagues to share it all with makes it all that much better. Yeah, no kidding. I'll say, I, 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 like I said, I went to APAC for the first time this past year, the uh, Audio Publishers, Audiobook Publishers Association Conference, and um, it was fantastic. I, I loved it. I got to meet people who I knew from online but had never met in person. Uh, a lot of people fell into that category. I got to meet people that I hadn't heard of before that, um, that are big names in the industry, you and Scott Brick and uh, just a whole bunch of other people. And I loved it because everybody from the top to the bottom was so friendly and open and, you know, willing to talk about just about anything. It was a great experience. I love that about the audiobook uh, community. Yeah, I, I think we're all so eager to, to be together with people who um, understand what it is we do. And, you know, we our work is so solitary that the combination of those two things, you know, being outside (laughs) for Mm -hmm. one and, and being with people who really know what it is we all do. Yeah. Um, and appreciate it. That's just like, yeah. No, it was, it was fantastic. So one of the things that happened when I was at APAC, uh, I went down to the listening lounge late in the afternoon on, on that day of the conference. And I had misunderstood uh, I went down there because I hadn't got, I, I think that was when they were doing the speed dating. Uh, and I, I hadn't gotten uh, picked for that cause that was a lottery thing. And so mm-hmm. I went down there cause that was the option. And I thought, uh, I read the description and it said something about, you know, hearing the narrators, uh, do the, hearing the, the top tier narrators do their work. And I thought, oh, okay. I, I honestly thought it was going to be a snooze fest because I thought they were just going to be playing clips of famous narrators who had done these books. And of course that would be fine. They would be great and they would sound good, but everybody would be distracted with their phones and whatnot. And I would be as well. And, um, and I found out I was completely wrong because it was live reads. Um, I believe it was Johnny Heller who was the MC for that hour. And, uh, and he introduced people and they came up and they did live reads and it was amazing. 
I loved yeah. it. I totally yeah. loved it. It was not what I expected, and I was so happy. It was it was great listening to you guys read because you did one as well. So I mm-hmm. would love it if you could do a live read for us right now here in the audiobook speakeasy. Are you up for that? Oh, um, sure. That would be great. I will I will kick back. I will sit here and drink my martini, and if there are any olive munching sounds, I will edit them out later. So um, what would you like me to read? <laughs> Uh, your choice, actually, since, uh, romance is half of your work, I think it would be great for, for some romance. Okay. Um, is it like, uh, is the content, um, restricted? (laughs) No, not at all. Actually, I've got the, uh, I've got the, the Apple explicit sign because I don't know what people are going to say and I don't care what people say. And so it's fine with me. Okay. Well, actually, um, the book that I'm working on this week, um, had, (laughs) had a really great, um, little, yeah, yeah, this, okay, how long do you want it? Like a a minute? Uh, Two, three minutes, whatever, whatever works for you. Okay. Um, so, so I'll just set the scene. Um, Starstruck is about a, it's sort of like, um, the trope of, uh, one person thinks that they outstatus their higher status than the other person. Okay. So you've got an actress who's got a bit of a reputation as being high maintenance. Um, and she kind of knows it, but she, as the beginning of the book unfolds, she snaps at people and then she instantly feels like, why am I doing this? But she can't seem to help herself. And so she's seated next to a guy at a, um, an LA sort of 24 hour play festival that she supports, um, it's as part of like philanthropic for LA kind of thing. Okay. Um, so she's sitting next to uh, a guy that she, she doesn't know who he is. Um, so that's kind of how it happens. Okay. Um, okay. Sounds good. And what's the title again? Uh, Starstruck by Laurelyn Page. Okay. Yeah. But the more he thought about it, the more he was furious at her. Was she really that shallow, or was he reading her wrong? He shouldn't say anything. He should just let it lie. But he had to know. You're not upset about using a set, are you? He kept his voice down so that only she could hear him. You're upset that you were flirting with someone who builds sets. Heather's mouth dropped open. I was not! She lowered her voice to a tense whisper. I was not flirting. You most certainly were. Seriously? How could she deny it? I was not. She stabbed her index finger into the table as if to enforce her point. I was talking to you like I talk to everyone. I'm very charming. You're not that charming. I am so charming. She shifted in her seat, and he could see her anger revving up. How dare you, anyway? She hissed. You don't know. You don't even know me. He wanted to say that he did know her. He knew her type. Conceited. Arrogant. She expected the world to fall at her feet, and when it didn't, she demanded an explanation as to why not. Wasn't that what she'd just been doing with Patrick? But he couldn't bring himself to be that honest. It was too cruel. Still, he couldn't drop the conversation. Not yet. Not when she'd played with him like she had. I know that you didn't flirt with anyone else that talked to you here tonight. She sat back, her eyelashes fluttering. Were you watching me? Are you, like, obsessed with me? She huffed out a thick breath of air. Typical. 
And I know that your reputation does not label you as charming. It was a low blow. Everyone truly in the Hollywood realm knew that reputations were often a bunch of bullshit. But he was extremely pissed. My reputation? That's... You can't believe... He had her where he wanted her. Flustered and out of defenses, he went in for the kill. And wasn't it funny how your charm went away the minute you discovered what my involvement with the plays was? When you figured out you were flirting with a crew member? I have nothing against crew members. Then it's just carpenters. She rolled her eyes. God, this is ridiculous. You're totally twisting this around to be about something that it's not. You're taking my opposition to using a set and making it about you. Self-centered much? Fuck polite. She'd gone cruel first. Well, isn't that the pot calling the kettle black? Stuck up much? Asshole. Bitch. That was awesome. <laughs> I love and that interplay. And they totally are, yeah, they're totally hot for each other. <laughs> I, I love that interplay. That was masterful interplay on a, on a live read. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you for playing along with the live read. I, I absolutely loved that at APAC, and I'm definitely going to see whoever comes here in the audiobook speakeasy if they can do that, because that was, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so I had and, go ahead. Fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I had fun reading it. I know I had fun reading it today. So fun <laughs> to read it again. That's great. Um, so, in addition to being a fabulous narrator, you're also a narration coach, I believe. Actually, I think you're also in, just an acting coach. Is that? Am I correct there? Um, well, I mean, I don't do in-person acting coaching per se. I used to do voice coaching for. Um, the university live theater program, um, because I was teaching the voice class. So I would coach Shakespeare productions or whatever. Uh, God, um, but I've what just, yeah, for, for the longest time, I avoided coaching audiobooks because I really felt like I was still learning mm -hmm. and, um, didn't really want to say I teach this when I felt like I was still a student in many ways. Mm -hmm. But, um, I've just recently opened my Fridays up to about, I can fit about four students per Friday. And so I'm just starting very small and working with mostly working narrators already mm -hmm. um, who, who just, um, maybe they're stuck in their habits or they feel like they've plateaued and they want some new, something to kind of juice their creativity or they want to talk about a business thing. Um, because business wise, I think I've, uh, kind of been able to see around some corners maybe. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the business side of the audiobook world, Ooh, that's a whole other monster. Um, I had an, act, yeah. <laughs> had an acting coach at one point who used to say, um, acting is great. The business of acting sucks. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, I thought that was true for acting in general. And I think that it's true for voiceover and specific genres within voiceover as well. It's, it's unfortunate, but it's a, a big part of it. You're a small business person and you have to have to treat it that way. I actually love it. Oh, <laughs> like, that's great. Yeah, Holy cow. That's um, what a so, great resource. Yeah. Then. I hope everybody listening remembers <laughs> that, that you love the business side of it because getting somebody who loves the business side of it to teach you how to do the business side of it is exactly what you need. 
yeah, I kind of geek out over it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's fantastic. So when it comes to, so coaching is kind of a new thing and you're not doing a whole lot of it, but when it comes to coaching, what's your specific style? What, what I'm remembering is that the other thing that I took part in when I went to APAC was Johnny Heller's Splendiferous Narration Workshop the day before APAC. And I, mm-hmm. I, it was the first time I'd been to one of those as well. And I did not really know exactly what to expect for the in-person coaching that takes place. I think it was three or four times during the day where people come in, come up to the stage for a, a five or 10 minute coaching session with one of the presenters at the workshop. And um, that I think that was the first time that I had heard you and I was the intensity with which you did that short coaching session really struck me. So how do you look at your coaching? What, what is it that you try to accomplish and how is it that you try to accomplish it? Well, um, for performance coaching, because I have a background in uh, link letter voice, uh, method, which is all about working back and back and back and back to the spine and the breath, because if there's a problem at the end product with tension or inhibition or any of that, you just keep working back and back and back until you get the person um, physically aligned in their spine and breathing um, on impulse uh, so that the breath is connected to the thought impulse. Um, And so in person, the great thing is I can put my hands on somebody. I can cue them physically. You know, what would happen if you let go here? Um, you know, imagine this and I can really see them 3d with my Skype coaching. Um, I can, it's kind of weird after teaching acting for 12 years, I can hear what somebody doesn't do. I can hear them stop themselves from doing something they were just about to do. And then they judged it and they threw it out and they didn't do it. Wow. So, um, yeah. And so what I'm really interested in is that thing that the person almost did and, and decided was not right for whatever reason. Because sometimes when you give yourself permission to respond to the first impulse, that's the thing. That's the thing that makes you sound different from anybody else. And we're so quick to judge it and throw it out. But the great thing about what we do is there's no um, risk to following that first impulse because you can always do it again and delete the first one. Mm -hmm. That that is great that you, that over the course of teaching you got that skill that that really is amazing to be able to tell what somebody didn't do i i was in a um you're familiar with meisner technique yeah so i i did a meisner class one time with somebody who i had been in an improv class with actually and i found out later that she did meisner and decided to take her class and had a great time and we were doing a group repeating exercise and for anybody who doesn't know meisner it's just you're generally it's two people and you just are looking at each other and you repeat what each person says. And in this group exercise, it was kind of throwing it around the room and everybody was in a circle and and we were doing that. And at some point I started repeating with my instructor and all of a sudden I just got this sense from her about the fact that she had, she had such a feeling of protectiveness about this group Mm -hmm. that she was leading And we were repeating something uh, basic. I don't even know what it was. You know, you're smiling now. You're smiling now. You're smiling now. Something like that. And all of a sudden, I felt like saying, you're such a mom. And I didn't. I held back. And I thought, that's just goofy. And I just kept doing what we were doing. 
And I told her that afterwards, and she said, oh, my God, you, you would have been right. And that, to me, was – I still th – this was like 10, 15 years ago, and I still remember that experience thinking, go with your gut sometimes, you know, or, or all the time. You know, understand that what, what it is that's mm -hmm. coming up as an actor is really important. So uh, that's an amazing quality to, to be able to uh, coach somebody and be able to tell what it is that they didn't do. Yeah. And then there are, you know, other technique things that, um, that I can direct people on and stuff like that. Um, but I'm really interested in developing an actor's sensitivity to the text so that they can, they can take that and apply it to anything that they're reading. Mm, yeah, that's great. Sounds great. So do you have any, uh, horror stories in your, in your coaching experience, even though it's not, you know, years long coaching or many years long coaching? Have you ever worked with someone and after two or three or five sessions, you just said, you know what, I think you might want to consider a different line of work here. No, um, partly, partly because of, um, who I'm coaching, they're already working mm -hmm. and they are, you know, they're not only already working, but they're investing in doing something new. Um, so that's a particular sort of a mindset. And then I did a mini course. I did a five-week intro to audiobooks course, but I actually took applications for it. Um, I collected sound samples. I asked everybody to send me a minute of them reading and a minute of them just telling me about themselves. And, um, you know, I, I said I would open it up to five people, but I ended up working with three people because those were the three people I felt were going to, to have the best potential in the industry. Um, and that's who I wanted to work with. So I think because of the way I get my students or the way they find me and we decide to work together, um, I'm not really hanging out a shingle in general and saying, I'll teach anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that probably, um, insulates me from that. And I have to say though, if there were some kind of horror story, um, I'm not sure I would tell it. <laughs> you know fair enough just because i feel like that puts a chilling effect on somebody who might want to work with me that that puts pressure on them to be a quote-unquote good student mm -hmm. and that's how we get stuck in self-judgment like worrying if if we're doing it quote-unquote right you know yeah no no it makes sense and like i mentioned before i, I was so impressed when i met everybody in person about what a what an open and giving community it is, and uh, it actually would surprise me a little if that had happened to anybody. I, I've asked a few people and haven't had any big responses. Have, haven't had any responses about um, working with somebody and just telling them you should do something else. But I'm always interested in hearing not just the good but the bad, and and if there have been any you know difficult experiences, whether it's coaching or um, you know, a business relationship between a narrator and a publisher or anything like that. I think it can be instructional to other people who are trying to, trying to break into the field or are already established, but want to make sure they're doing the right thing. Yeah. I, I think I would say that it's more a matter of, um, so many authors are new to audiobooks. They get into audiobooks and they, they know that they should have their titles in audio, but they're just, they're intimidated. They're busy. They're, you know, they just wrote a book mm -hmm. <laughs> They're in, you know, and they've already got their outline for the next one. And all of a sudden, what is this now? I'm supposed to be doing audio. And, you know, how do I make sure that I mean, it's, it's a big investment? Yeah. How do I make sure I'm not throwing money down the drain? And so for some personality types that leads to, um, 
more like micromanagement than, than is necessary. And I haven't had that too much, but what I've found really helps with that is simply calling time out and saying, what are you worried about? And a lot of times it's just a general anxiety. That's the same anxiety that makes them worry that somebody's not going to like their book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can kind of get in there with them and say, you know, you, you chose great narrators we have this proven process, there's quality control all the way along, and you're going to hear it, and you're going to have a chance to, you know, give this kind of feedback, but you also need to let go a little in the same way that a playwright lets go of their play when it's up on its feet. Sure, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, so, um, yeah. so I, I've had authors say, like, aren't you proud of me? I only had a few things, you know? <laughs> This time, I only had a few things, and I really thought about them, and I really feel strongly, so can we please fix this? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'll, I want authors to be happy, but I feel like as the, as the project coordinator, I am the linchpin between the author and the narrators, and part of my job also is to um, absorb things from both sides that the other side doesn't really need to know. Sure, yeah. So aside from... Uh audiobook narration and narration coaching for audiobook performers. Is there any other part of your VO business? Do you, do you do commercials or any other VO genre? Um, I have some e-learning clients left over from when I was doing a lot of e-learning. Um, for, at one point I was the voice of smartphone demos at all the AT&T stores. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was my, that was a big one. Um, and I still do, I just did some e-learning yesterday for the Virginia Department of Health. They have a, an ongoing training program for their home visiting social workers. And that's fascinating because these social workers need to know the law, the, um, the thinking about how best to serve their families uh, that they visit, um, things like if you suspect domestic abuse, what to do that doesn't further endanger the person that you're worried about, um, you know, so it's, it's fascinating real life stuff. Yeah. Um, real and life I also, important. yeah, it is, it is. Uh, so I enjoy doing that. Um, so I have a couple of corporate e-learning clients and I like that. And I've recently gotten on with a group called Curio and they're based in the UK and they're doing the audio, uh, audio service for the financial times of London, um, for, uh, uh Eon magazine, Oh, so is for that like salon for, magazine for narrating and, articles? Yeah, and I just started doing. Hmm? Is is that like for narrating articles from those publications? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, they just started working on a trial basis for the Washington Post, and the Washington Post chose me to um, read the first article for them, and it was a Pulitzer Prize winning um, long form article about the opioid epidemic. Ooh. And uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I love me some nonfiction. Yeah, no, that's um, great. That's an important yeah. topic right now. Mm-hmm. And so every week I get an article from the Financial Times and one or two other long-form articles from other publications. And that's a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt. So a little more VO work in there than uh, the novels all day long. Yeah. Well, very cool. So, um, so where can people find you if they want to look you up? On the web, on Twitter, wherever. AndyArt.com. AndyArt.com. And that's got that's all the, the hub. all the links to all the appropriate places? It does. Cool. 
Well, Andy, this has been so great. Thank you so much for coming by. I uh, I know it was short notice for the schedule change, and I really appreciate the fact that uh, that you were available. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate being asked. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, this was great. Thanks, Andy. All right, take care. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Andy Arndt for making time in her busy schedule for a last-minute trip to the audiobook speakeasy. And I hope you'll be able to join me next week when Carol Mondo will hopefully be able to make it. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. As of right now, I don't have any sponsors for the podcast, and I don't have any plans to go out looking for any. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!